Well, if you want to turn in your Bibles to both Romans 8 and 1 Thessalonians 1, Romans 8 and 1 Thessalonians 1, we'll read both Romans 8.30 and 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2 to 10. Um, We are in a series right now entitled The Unbreakable Chain of Salvation. We're in we're trying to answer the question, uh, when we say that God has saved a person, what are we talking about? What are we talking about? What, what does it mean for uh, salvation to be applied to an individual's life? Um, and this is a little bit different from how we normally do uh, sermon series at Veritas. Normally, we'll take a book of the Bible and we'll just kind of slowly make our way through that particular book, uh, just going wherever it takes us. Um, but this is a little bit different in that we're, we're looking at several different themes that we find in Scripture regarding uh, the nature of our salvation. And we're just trying to unpack those themes one by one. And so if you want to go to the next slide for me, um, the next one, there we go. So uh, we're looking at the unbreakable chain of salvation. And there are several links that make up um, this, this chain of salvation. When we talk about salvation, there are many aspects of that salvation that we need to talk about. So we looked two Sundays ago at the the first link being predestined and elected by God. Um, And then last week we looked at the the second link being called and regenerated by God. And this this kind of brings us up to the moment where a person begins to follow Jesus. The the gift of being called and born again by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. But then we're coming to the third link today, which uh, is the result of being called and being born again, which is our conversion. Our conversion is just a a fancy word that means faith and repentance. And so we're going to talk about this today, and then uh, as the series moves on, we'll go on to talk about justification and adoption and sanctification and perseverance and glorification. And I know that some of these are big words, but uh, we're going to go through and define and explore each one of them, so don't let that uh, shake you at all. We're, we're looking forward to diving into all of these biblical concepts, these biblical words that the Bible speaks to you regarding our salvation. So um, let's read 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and Romans 8, 30. First, Romans 8, 30, then 1 Thessalonians 1, uh, 1, 2 through 10. So if you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence and joy this is the word of our God. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 10. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers of Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything 
For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for your word that you have revealed to us what you have done to save us and what we must do to be saved. And so we pray that that you would grant us open ears and open eyes and soft hearts this morning to receive the truth of your word and to believe it, to trust it, to obey it for the glory of your name, for our good and for the good of those that you've called us to love and serve in our church and in our neighborhoods and our workplaces and all the various places to which you've called us. We need you now. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Well, um, as you know, if you've been around for any amount of time with us, uh, I I love to intro sermons with a bit of uh, Christian history. And uh, I recently came uh, across a bit of an excerpt of a a conversation between Billy Graham and Karl Barth. Billy Graham and Karl Barth. Now, Billy Graham may not need much of an introduction for you. Uh, He was a, a globally famous evangelist, and he would travel from town to town, state to state, country to country, even continent to continent, and he would preach these these urgent evangelistic messages, preaching the cross and the resurrection of Christ, and and the need for his hearers to repent of sin and trust in Christ, And, and people in droves would respond to his messages with professions of faith, and of course Graham had his critics and, and has his critics, and, and some of those criticisms are just, but there's no doubt that the Lord used Graham significantly here in the U.S. and throughout the world for his glory. He effectually called many through Graham's ministry. Well, at one point, Graham was traveling through Switzerland. He was traveling and preaching in Switzerland, and uh, that is where the, the great Swiss theologian Karl Barth lived, and Barth went to hear Graham to preach, which would be very intimidating. Uh, you know, Billy Graham was not what one would call a sophisticated theologian. He was a country boy that God called to preach. Uh, But Karl Barth, on the other hand, uh, was really probably the greatest theologian of his day. Uh, Maybe one of the greatest theologians to ever live. Um, I don't agree with him on quite a lot, uh, but he's still probably the greatest, one of the greatest theologians to ever live. Well, he went to hear Graham preach, and Bart and Billy got to sit down afterward and, and have a conversation. In my mind, I, I picture uh, Bart probably with an adult beverage in his hand, and Billy Graham's an American, he's a Baptist from the U.S., so he's probably drinking some soda pop or something. And uh, they're, they're having a conversation, and uh, Bart told Graham that he took issue with an aspect of his message. In typical Graham fashion, he'd been preaching the gospel with great urgency had been urging people to hear and and believe the gospel, to act now with urgency and put their faith in Christ, repent of sin, and be converted. And Bart said to him, listen, I I agreed largely with your sermon, but I don't like that you're telling people to to act now and to be converted. I wish you would change that. And Graham said, well, that's what the Bible says. Uh, we, We all need to be converted. We all need to act and put our faith and trust in Christ. It's scriptural, isn't it? And Bart, Bart agreed. He said, yeah, it's, it's scriptural. But then he said he felt that Graham shouldn't be telling people to act and respond to the gospel. Instead, he should tell them that God had already acted in their salvation. 
Graham said that, that he heard Bart out, he politely disagreed, and then they remained good friends. That's a good lesson for us. Because now we, we move on to the doctrine of conversion this week. And, and up to this point in our sermon series, we've looked at election and predestination. We've looked at the effectual call and the new birth. And, and up to this point in Scripture's teaching about these doctrines, we're completely passive. We're completely passive. Our election took place in eternity past. We did nothing to cooperate with it, to earn it or deserve it. The effectual call and the new birth are gifts given to us by God without our cooperation because prior to them we were spiritually dead and trespasses and sins. But here as we discuss conversion, there's a sense in which we're passive. There's a sense in which we're, we're passive because conversion is the result of the effectual call and the new birth. But we're also active in our conversion. We, we, we said last week that there's a problem with this analogy of seeing salvation as a dance. Cadavers don't dance. We're dead in trespasses and sins apart from Christ. But after the new birth, we're made alive in Christ so that we're no longer merely passive in our salvation, but we are actively, as an act of the will, putting our trust in Christ and repenting of sin. And so who's right? Is, is Billy right or is, is Bart right? Who is right? In a way, both of them were right. But we have to see here that, that Billy Graham was indeed right. He was right on in his practice to call people to act now in repenting and trusting in Christ. Think about Acts 2, 37 to 38 with me. So there, Peter just preached this, this incredible sermon about Christ, about his cross, about his resurrection, the people's need for salvation. And this large crowd responds with great conviction of sin and desire to be saved. And so in verse 37, it says that they were cut to the heart and they cry out, brothers, what shall we do to be saved? What do we need to do? What does Peter say? Oh, well, uh, I just preached that. I actually just kind of waited out. I don't know, sit there, see what happens. Does he tell them to do nothing? No, he doesn't tell them to do nothing. What does he say? He says, repent and be baptized. He tells them to be converted. You'll see a very similar occurrence. If you look at Acts 16, 30, there Paul and Silas are in jail in Philippi. So Paul was preaching the gospel in Philippi. The authorities arrested Paul for disturbing the peace, which he didn't. Jesus will get in trouble sometimes. And so he goes to jail. But while he's in jail, Paul and Silas, they're praying, they're singing hymns, and all of a sudden there's an earthquake. There's an earthquake, and, and, and all the prison doors open, and their chains fall off. And when this Philippian jailer comes and sees all the prison doors open, he assumes the prisoners have escaped, and he goes to kill himself. It seems as if facing his superior with, the news, uh, with this news would have resulted in something worse than death in his estimation. But before he does... Paul calls them and he stops them and he tells them that they're still present, that they didn't escape as they had the chance. And so the, 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 the jailer, so affected by this, he goes to Paul and Silas and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul doesn't say, I don't know, just wait, wait for it to happen. He doesn't say that. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now those two texts just do a wonderful job of showing us what we must do to be converted. As we've already noted, conversion is just a fancy word for faith and repentance in the believer. All those who are saved 
put their faith in Christ and repent of sin. All those who are saved, put their faith in Christ and repent of sin. Acts 2.38, repent. Acts 16.30, believe. These are essential elements, the essential ingredients that make up conversion. Faith and repentance is what conversion is. You know, there, there, there are many variables in our uh, actual experiences of conversion. Uh, so different Christians will often experience conversion in different ways. Uh, some people experience conversion uh, at a young age, some uh, when they're older. Uh, some, some remember the exact time and date of their conversion, some don't. Some conversions seem very dramatic, some don't seem very dramatic. And sometimes that might have something to do with our, our personalities, what our lives are like uh, before being converted, or some other extenuating circumstances. Some people have very dramatic conversions. Others have rather undramatic conversion stories. You know, think about C.S. Lewis. He tells the story of his conversion in, in his wonderful book, Surprised by Joy. It's a kind of uh, autobiography. But he, he talks about how one day, he'd just been thinking a lot about Christianity, and he, he gets on his motorcycle, he goes on a quick motorcycle ride to the store or something, and when he got on the motorcycle, he's not a Christian, but then just a few minutes later, he gets off his motorcycle after his ride, and he believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Nothing really dramatic took place, but he was converted. Others have very dramatic conversion stories. I think of John Bunyan. He's this, this, uh, this Baptist pastor from uh, the, the 1600s. For instance, he, he tells the story of his conversion as one in which for months he was dealing with, with just severe despair over his own sinfulness and vileness and unacceptableness before the Lord. But then, but then one day as he's walking through a field, all of a sudden he says this great light shone upon his soul and, and he said that with the eyes of his heart he saw Jesus Christ at God's right hand and as the eyes of his heart gazed upon Jesus this burden of, of guilt and shame was lifted and he knew that he was no longer condemned it was very dramatic like, Bur like Bunyan some of our conversion stories may be very dramatic maybe like Lewis's they weren't but it was incredibly emotional Maybe our emotions were incredibly demonstrative, or maybe it was a bit more cerebral and, and less demonstrative. You know, emotions, of course, always are involved in conversion, as we'll see in a bit, but, but our personalities, the circumstances surrounding our conversion, some other variables may make them more or less emotionally intense. There are variables at play in our conversion. That's all that to say. There are variables at play, and, and I, I share that because so often Christians can confuse the variables involved in conversion for conversion itself. So we see someone converted, or we hear someone's conversion story, and, and we think, oh, that's, that's what conversion is? That's what conversion is supposed to look like? Mine didn't look like that. Maybe I'm not converted. And we may think that because our conversion wasn't as emotional or demonstrative or dramatic as someone else's, that, that it's less of a conversion or maybe a false conversion. Or, or maybe we think, on the other hand, that, that when we see or hear about someone's conversion that involved a, a great deal of intellectual reflection and contemplation, that because ours didn't look like that, ours might not be the real deal. There are variables at play, though. Differing experiences regarding conversion. But ultimately, what we need to see and understand this morning is that conversion, what, what it is at its core, leaving the variables aside, what is conversion? What is the thing itself? Scripture says that at its core, conversion is faith and repentance. 
all who are saved put their faith in God and repent of sin. They put their faith in Christ and they repent of sin. That's the main idea of what we're looking at here. Now, the word conversion is, is, is not used often in our modern translations. You'll see it a lot more in older translations like the, like the KJV, the King James Version. Uh, but in our newer translations, they typically translate the Greek word as turn, turn rather than conversion or converted. You know, the ESV translation, the one I use in, in preaching here, it does use the noun conversion once in Acts 15.3. It speaks of, of Paul and Barnabas uh, as they're passing through Phoenicia and Samaria. They're giving testimony to, their, to, to the church there about their missions work. And uh, it says that while doing so, they described in great detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and it brought great joy to all the brothers. Uh, that, that word conversion there, that noun, could just as well be uh, translated as turning, the turning of the Gentiles. Uh, one, one other place you'll find this word in its verb form is Matthew 18, 3. Uh, there Jesus says that unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And there the Greek verb translated as turn used to be translated as be converted. The KJV puts it this way. It says, except ye be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And you'll find that same verb translated as turn in the ESV, as be converted in the KJV in many texts, like Matthew 13, 15, Mark 4, 12, Luke uh, 22, 32, John 12, 40, Acts 3, 19, Acts 28, 27, just to name a few. And so, you see, this is a, this is a biblical word. This is a biblical concept that literally means to turn, to do a 180, to turn around. And now we should say, there are two aspects to that turning, right? There's, there's a turning a, away from something, but there's also a turning to something else. There's a negative aspect to conversion in that you turn away from a thing, but there's also a positive aspect to our conversion in that you're turning to something else. And again, those aspects are faith and repentance. The negative aspect of conversion is repentance. Uh, you're turning away from sin. The positive aspect of conversion is that you're turning to, you're turning to faith in Christ. And, and, and sure conversion always includes both these things. These are really just two sides of the same coin. They go hand in hand. They can't be separated. That's why sometimes in scripture, you'll see one discussed in relation to conversion and not the other. So again, Acts 2.38, a text we've already seen, we read earlier, when Peter tells the crowd what they must do to be saved, he says to repent. But then later, when Paul tells the Philippian jailer what he must do to be saved, he just says to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they don't at all seem to be worried that they're leaving an essential part out. They're not afraid that their hearers might repent without believing or believe without repenting. Because the two go together. And we often actually see the two spoken of together in Scripture as well. Uh, Jesus, in his own preaching ministry, in Mark 1.15, the evangelist Mark, he's writing... And he summarizes the message that Jesus went around preaching is this. He says, this is what Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Be converted, repent and believe. And the apostle Paul actually summarizes his own message, the message of his own preaching, much in the same way in Acts 20, 21. When he's describing his ministry in Ephesus, he describes it as saying that he testified to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
when the author of Hebrews is listing out some elementary Christian doctrines, basic doctrines that every believer should know. In that list, Hebrews 6.1, he mentions this, repentance from dead works and a faith towards God. That's the doctrine of conversion. It's elementary. This is basic. You need to know it. But then probably one of the most historically used texts to describe conversion is the one that we've read this morning. It's 1 Thessalonians 1.9. There, the Apostle Paul describes the sort of model conversion of the Thessalonians. And he describes it in this way. He says how, they, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And that word translated as turn there comes from the Greek verb translated as turn in our more modern translations and converted in the older translations. And notice there's this positive and negative, these positive and negative aspects of this conversion. They turned to God, that's faith, and they turned from idols, that's repentance. They turned from idols to serve the living and the true God. That's repentance, that's conversion. And this conversion, we should note, is, Paul says, the result of predestination and the effectual call. We look above at verses 4 and 5 we read. There Paul says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. That's election and predestination. And how do they know that God has chosen and elected these, these Thessalonians? Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That's the effectual call. The gospel came not only in word, but also in the power of the Holy Spirit. Those whom God predestined, he also called. Those whom he predestined, he also called, Romans 8.30. But then this effectual call led to this next link to this real and substantial conversion. The Thessalonians turned to God in faith and repented, turning away from their idols. That's what conversion is, faith and repentance. Turning to God, faith, turning from idols, repentance. And of course, we, we, we might note that all sin is idolatry. We should say something about idolatry here. All sin is really disordered and misplaced worship. All sin is taking good things and making them into God things, misdirected worship. We take good created things, good things like self, like money, like sex, like family, like jobs, like entertainment, comfort, safety, children, spouses, whatever. It can be anything other than God, and we worship it instead of the one true God. And then conversion is turning to God from worshiping those idols, those things, faith and repentance. Now, if conversion is made up of faith and repentance, what is faith and repentance? We've been using those two words a lot. What is faith? What is repentance? We probably need to know that. So I want to take a few moments just to define these and then do some application so faith, first, is, is the positive aspect of conversion. Faith is the part of conversion in which we turn to God. It involves several key aspects. Saving faith includes knowledge, agreement, and trust. Saving faith is a knowing, agreeing, and trusting faith. Knowing, agreeing, and trusting. So knowing. First, first saving faith involves knowing. It involves knowledge. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of the gospel. One must know and comprehend and understand 
The gospel. You must know and understand the the truth claims of the gospel. You must know and understand the truth claims of the, the scripture's teaching concerning Christ, of his cross, of his resurrection. You must recognize those truth claims. Saving faith starts there. That's why we are so earnest as a church, as believers, to get the message of the gospel out. People need to know this good news. They need to know about Jesus Christ. They need to know about his cross, his resurrection. They need to know about this this urgent necessity of being converted to Christ. It starts with knowledge. Then also it goes beyond knowledge. There are plenty of people in the world who can regurgitate facts about Christian beliefs regarding Christ and his work. And so it doesn't end there. True faith also agrees with these truth claims of the gospel. It's an agreeing faith. True faith not only knows the facts, it agrees with them. Okay, so there is intellectual assent. There is agreement. The Christian really does believe that Jesus Christ truly did die for the sins of his people. The the, the believing Christian truly does believe that he rose from the dead three days later. True faith agrees with and assents to these claims. It believes them. But that still is not enough, actually. True saving faith goes beyond knowledge and agreement. One text that clearly attests to this is James 2.19. When James says that even demons believe and shudder. Even the demons believe and shudder. You need to know, Satan and demons have really good doctrine. Really good doctrine. What's more is they actually believe it. They agree with it. They believe, they agree with the statement that Jesus is the Son of God. They agree with the statement that he died for the sins of his people. They agree with the statement that he rose bodily from the dead on the third day. They believe with the statement that he did all of this to save his people, but they're not saved. And there are plenty of Christians throughout the world professing to be Christians who believe in the same way that demons do. But that's not all that's needed for saving faith. Saving faith must also include trust. Saving faith is a trusting faith. True faith not only knows and agrees with the truth claims of the gospel, true faith rests in Christ. It trusts Christ. It depends on Christ for salvation. True saving faith says and feels I myself, I stand condemned before God because of my sin. And so I'm banking on Christ, on his cross, on his resurrection to make me right with God. I'm betting the blue chips on Jesus to be sufficient for me, for my forgiveness, for my salvation, for my eternal life. That is trusting faith. You know, a story uh, that that illustrates this really well is this, uh, the story involving the, the great missionary John Payton. Uh, and he was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands dotting the South Seas. And so as part of his, his, his missionary work, uh, he went to the, the Anawan tribe, the island of Tana. And as part of his work there, he worked on translating the New Testament from Greek into Anawan. And for years, he, he struggled to translate a particular word, the Greek word we translate as faith. And, and this is a huge hang-up. You, you can't translate, the, you can't fi- have a finished translation of the New Testament without having a sufficient word for faith. It's an essential word. It's an essential word. And for quite some time, 
he just used the Anawad, the Anawan word that meant to hear. He, he couldn't really figure out a, a sufficient word for this. There was no word that correlated perfectly to this word faith. And hearing, just hearing, wasn't sufficient. And so he struggled and he studied and he talked with locals for, for years, actually. But then one day, it hit him. He was sitting in his study chair. He was working on his translation, I assume out in his front yard, because a local woman was passing by. She was walking by and he asked her, he said, what am I doing here? What, what am I doing? She said, in the, Anawis, in, in the Anawan language, you're sitting down. But then he, he leaned completely back in his chair and he put his feet up on his desk and he asked her, what am I doing now? What am I doing now? And she said, and I'm going to mess this up. She said, Fakarongrongo, Fakarongrongo, which means you're leaning, you're leaning wholly, completely. You have lifted yourself from every other support. Peyton began to rejoice. He finally had the right word to translate this word for faith. In his autobiography, he says this. He says, to lean on Jesus wholly and surely is the true meaning of saving faith. And now, Fakarongrongo, Yesu, E, Neamori, leaning on Jesus into eternal life, is the happy experience of those Christian islanders, as it is of all who thus cast themselves unreservedly on the Savior of the world for salvation. You see, that is saving faith. Saving faith not only knows about Jesus, saving faith not only agrees with the Bible's claims about Jesus, saving faith personally trusts and rests on and leans on Jesus. Friends, you may be here this morning and you may know some facts about Jesus. You may even agree with those facts, but that is not enough. You need to trust in Jesus. He is the one who lived the perfect life that you should have lived. So that he was the only one who deserved God's favor and acceptance. You don't deserve God's favor and acceptance because of your sin and rebellion against you. You deserve his rejection and eternal punishment. But Jesus deserved his favor and acceptance. But he also paid the penalty you do deserve because of your sin. He died a sinner's death on a Roman cross. And there he died in our place. There he took what we deserve, the penalty that we deserve, so that in exchange he could give us what he deserves, namely the favor and acceptance of God and eternal life with him. And if you will put your trust in him, that's precisely what he will give you. Turn to him today, trust in him, and be saved. But then faith is, is not the only aspect of conversion and turning to God. We also turn from sin. Remember the, the, the Thessalonians' conversion. They turned to God from idols. Conversion also means turning from idols. It also means repentance. The word typically translated as, as repent in the New Testament literally means to have a change of mind and purpose. Jay Packer defined it best when he once said that it means a change of mind which issues in a change of life. Change of mind, which issues in a change of life. That's a kind of basic definition. But then like, like faith, theologians have often noted that, that according to Scripture, Scripture shows three main aspects of conversion, which makes up this, this genuine repentance in the believer's life. 
True repentance feels remorse for sin, it renounces sin, and it runs from sin. So first, repentance must begin with remorse for sin. There is genuine remorse, genuine grief, genuine sorrow for sin. We mentioned earlier these, these texts that, uh, that, that a, a person's conversion may include more or less extreme emotions. A person's conversion might not look like someone wailing and weeping and, and be all that demonstrative in its display of emotions. But there are emotions involved. There's grief. There's sorrow. There's, there's remorse. We see this in the scriptures. Earlier, we, we mentioned the crowd in Acts 2 or the Philippian jailer in, in Acts 16. You can hear sorrow in the question. They're cut to the heart. Brothers, what shall we do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? This question bubbles up from a place of sincere conviction and sorrow and contrition. And it's that kind of contrition and sorrow and remorse that serves as the beginning point of repentance. It's a necessary aspect of repentance. We see Isaiah 66 too, that, that this kind of disposition in a person that the Lord is looking for, Isaiah 66 too, the Lord says, this is to the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in heart and trembles at my word. Psalm 51, 17, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He's talking about repentance. It's those who are poor in spirit. It's those who mourn, Jesus says, that are blessed. In his parable about the, the Pharisee and the tax collector that Jesus tells, who is it that Jesus says is truly converted? It's the tax collector who weeps and beats his chest and won't even look up to heaven and says, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. There's remorse. There's grief. But then we need to be careful here. We shouldn't take remorse in general. It's a kind of proof of repentance. The Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians 7.10, he makes the very careful and enlightening distinction between worldly grief and godly grief and repentance. He says that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. We need to make this careful distinction because, because sometimes... We mistake grief in general as a kind of proof of repentance. But there is such thing as there is such a thing as worldly grief. And worldly grief shows remorse for sin, but for all the wrong reasons. Worldly grief shows remorse for sin because you're embarrassed and got caught. Worldly grief shows remorse because your reputation is tarnished in the sight of others. Worldly grief shows remorse because a person doesn't like the temporal consequences of their sin, like loss of trust in relationships, loss of position, loss of reputation, or what have you. Judas showed worldly grief after betraying Christ. He was grieving over that. But his grief led to death, not to life, not to salvation without regret. Godly grief is different. Godly grief shows remorse for God-centered reasons. It shows remorse for sin because you've offended a holy and righteous and good and gracious Father with your sin. And you know that He would be completely just and right to condemn you for hellfire for all of eternity. 
You need to be able to tell the difference between worldly grief and godly grief. But then so often the difference is so, actually so evident because godly grief leads to these other aspects of repentance. Godly grief leads to renouncing of sin. As an act of the will, a, a repentant person confesses sin and makes a real, true break with their lifestyle of sin. They renounce it. They confess it. Psalm 51, as we just read the verse 17 from that psalm, is a very potent example of this in the scriptures there. King David confesses murder and adultery and rape to the Lord in grieving, sorrowful prayer. There he renounces his sin and banks on the mercy and grace of God for his forgiveness and redemption. Repentance, Renounces sin. For the sake of time, we need to move on. And lastly, there's not just remorse and renouncing, but in repentance, there's running. There's running. As J.C. Ryle once said, good feelings and desires are useless if they're not accompanied by action. To say that we are sorry for our sins is mere hypocrisy unless we show that we are really sorry for them by giving them up. Repentance runs from sin. It doesn't just feel remorse and renounce sin. It runs from sin. It doesn't just leave a person unchanged. They truly turn away from sin. They run from it. There is a real and substantial change that takes place in the repentant person's life. They don't do the same things that they used to do. They don't say the same things that they used to say. They don't think the same things that they used to think. The person is really and truly changed. And Charles Spurgeon tells the story of a time when he was walking in the street and he came across a, a drunk man who said to him, Hey, Mr. Spurgeon, I'm one of your converts. Do you remember me? And Spurgeon, with his, with his sharp wit, said, Well, you must be one of mine because you're not one of the Lord's. Friends, we, we need to be very careful when it comes to these beliefs regarding conversion and faith and repentance because because we live in a world of easy believism in a world of cheap grace a world that settles for worldly grief instead of godly grief in a world that defines repentance so cheaply and in that kind of world there can be droves and droves of people who sincerely think themselves to be saved and on their way to eternity with christ but they're sadly mistaken and in light of that i'd like to apply this with both some personal application and some corporate application. It's important for us to know what conversion is and how to recognize it for both personal and corporate reasons as a church. First, the personal. You need to understand what true conversion is for the sake of your own assurance and salvation. You need to know what constitutes true conversion so that you can have assurance of your own salvation or to realize your need for salvation. It's important to know what conversion is and how to recognize it because we're called to take honest and sober assessments of ourselves to determine whether or not we're in the faith. Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Now, of course, we're not to examine ourselves all the time, mind you, this, there was a specific occasion in which Paul told the, this to the, the Corinthian Christians. There were certain problems in the church, certain issues arising, which made this particular command appropriate in that moment. Some of us examine ourselves far too often, more often than is appropriate. 
We're just constantly looking at ourselves, placing ourselves under a microscope, examining every conversation, every thought, every action, navel-gazing to the point where it's unhealthy. There is an unhealthy, an obsessive kind of introspection, which some of us fall into. But then probably more common, many of us don't ever engage in any kind of healthy examination and introspection. In the quiet moments we do get alone, we're just going from thing to thing throughout the day, in the quiet moments we do get alone, we fill with entertainment, with social media, with TV and games on phones and all of that. Well, neither of those are healthy. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, the Apostle Paul is calling for a balanced, healthy, sober examination of oneself wherein we measure ourselves against what the Bible says about conversion to see whether or not we're in the faith. And the outcome should be an honest assessment of whether, yes, I, I'm imperfect. Yes, I, I, I struggle with besetting sins. Yes, my faith is sometimes weak and my repentance is partial, but I'm truly converted. And then the person has assurance of God's salvation in their lives. Or the outcome should be, no, I'm not truly converted. I haven't truly put my faith in Christ. I'm not truly repentant. And so I need to do that right now. And we need to know what true conversion is so that we can make this honest and sober assessment. Sometimes Christians and churches don't talk about this at all. And as a result, some are in their midst who are not truly converted but think that they are. And that's, that, that, that's, a prob that's probably one of the most dangerous places for an unbeliever to be. To, 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 to not be truly converted but assume that you are. Michael Lawrence in his great book called Conversion, once said that giving an unconverted person assurance of their salvation is like giving them a vaccine against the gospel. We need to know what conversion is and thereby examine ourselves appropriately and soberly. And understand that the goal in coming to an honest assessment of your lack of true belief and repentance is that you would then believe and repent. Not just kind of go off saddened because you had a false conversion no the goal in realizing that you're not truly converted is that you would be truly converted and so i'd encourage you if, if, if you've not taken an honest examination of yourself ever or in quite a long time take these definitions these 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 definitions of conversion of faith of repentance consider the fruits of faith and repentance a changed life a life of obedience a life of holiness a life which seeks to please god and live according to his word Go to the scriptural text mentioned this morning. Go to 1 Thessalonians 1 here. And, 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 and there, see a people who experience the conviction of sin and joy of the Holy Spirit. There, whose lives are changed and they start to look more like Jesus. They're concerned for the lost and they begin to spread the message of salvation. Are those kinds of fruits evident in our lives? Those are the fruits of conversion. Those are the fruits of faith and repentance. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. This afternoon even. For the sake of your own assurance. Or for the sake of your true conversion. Maybe you need to take time to examine yourself. Are you really trusting in Christ? Do you have some kind of, the same kind of faith as, as demons? Or, 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 or are, you really are you merely stopping at, at mere knowledge and agreement of the claims of the Bible? 
Are you truly repentant? Or does your repentance stop at worldly grief and mere resolutions to be better? This might be a season in which you need to do business with God, in which you need to examine yourself. And as a word of caution, please, please, as you do so, please don't make the mistake of thinking that true conversion results in a believer living a sinless life. Please don't make the mistake that thinking, true, that, thinking that true belief and true repentance is perfect belief and perfect repentance. If, if, if you're looking for perfect faith and perfect repentance as proof of your conversion, you'll never find it. And therefore, you'll never find assurance. Know that on this side of glory, faith can be so weak. And repentance is always partial. As Charles Spurgeon once said, even the, 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 the tears of repentance are stained with sin. There's great wisdom in, in that prayer from that father in Mark 9.24. I believe, but help my unbelief. There's still some unbelief in us, in all of us. And maybe some of you that, that lean on Christ with some apprehension, with some fear, with some doubting, with some trepidation, but you still lean. And understand, whether your, your faith be weak or strong, your faith is not your Savior. Jesus is your Savior, and he is not weak. And so even if your faith is weak, you are still saved by the same strong Christ. Just like when a child is, is picked up by their parent, their hold on their parent may be weak, it may be strong. Sometimes they hold on tightly, sometimes they hold on weakly, and yet the thing that makes them secure is not their hold on their parent, but their parents hold on them. Your faith can be so weak, your repentance can be partial. So don't look for perfection in yourself. Look instead for true change, for evidence of sincere faith and genuine repentance, and look to Christ. And as you do so, you can say with John Newton, who summarized what we're looking for well when he said this, he said, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still, I am not what I once used to be, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's the Christian life. But then furthermore, we, we need to understand a more, a more outward or, or corporate application, rather. Members of Veritas, you need to be able to understand conversion and recognize the evidence for it for the sake of the health of our church. As members of a local church, you participate in the activities of evangelizing, of baptizing, of welcoming in new members, of serving the Lord's Supper, of administrating church discipline. And we don't want to be a church that haphazardly welcomes in new members and administers baptism and the Lord's Supper to non-converted people. We don't want to give people a vaccine against the gospel. We don't want to give false assurances so far as it depends on us. And so we need to take this responsibility seriously, and, and that involves understanding conversion and seeking to recognize it, not just in ourselves, but in others. And some of you are not liking this application right now, I, I'm, I'm sure. You'd think it better if we just open wide the doors to, to church membership and allow any and all who would come in. I mean, who are we to judge, right? It's a very Western and individualistic way of looking at church fellowship. And yet, the Apostle Paul, 
tells us that it actually is our job to judge one another. He says we are to judge one another. As, as, as uh, he says in, in 1 Corinthians 5.12, he says, What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? And understand, by judging, he's not talking about having like a judgmental spirit. He's not talking about a, 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 a sort of nasty-hearted judgmentalism being overly concerned with the sins and vices of others while we don't at all take stock of ourselves in humility. No, he, he, he simply means that as a local church, corporately, sometimes we have to engage in the activity of assessing and discerning the genuineness of one another's conversions to determine whether or not one another should be members of a local church. Sometimes we do that in a negative sense with, with the process of church discipline. It's laid out in Matthew 18, 15 through 20 excluding people from membership in our church. That's what 1 Corinthians 5 is talking about. And sometimes that happens positively, which has to do with welcoming and including professing believers in the fellowship of our church. But that's our calling. We don't judge the world in that way. Far too often, we are concerned with judging people in the world all while the church is a mess because we're not doing our job of judging those in the church as we're supposed to. But that's our duty, that's our calling as church members. But then we also need to give a caution here. We need to be careful as we welcome one another into church membership. We also need to, to do so charitably. We need to do so with grace. We have to judge one another in the way that we want to be judged. Just as we need to recognize for ourselves that faith is weak and repentance partial, so we need to remember that as we exercise our corporate responsibility of welcoming in new members, of baptizing, of serving the Lord's Supper, of doing church discipline. We need to recognize that, that while we do have this corporate responsibility, we're also not the conversion police. I recently sat down with a young man who fancied himself a, a, an expert on the conversions of others. He so coolly and casually let me know that several professing Christians he knew were not truly converted. Sometimes when we come to a clear understanding regarding the biblical teaching about conversion, we can get too zealous and less charitable than we ought to be. The Apostle Paul is a good example for us in this. In his, in his letters to the church in Corinth, you may not know this, that church was a mess. He's writing to this church. They're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They're struggling with false doctrine. They're not performing church discipline on someone who's committing horrible acts of sexual immorality, kinds that aren't even tolerated outside the church. There are horrible divisions based on hyper-partisanism. Sounds familiar. And there's more. They're a mess. And yet, in both 1 Corinthians 1-2 and 2 Corinthians 1-1, you know what the Apostle Paul calls them? He calls them saints. He calls them those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. He calls them holy. He calls them converted. He's a good example for us in this. Even in our disagreements with one another, even when we find other Christians, other church members whose lives are a mess due to sin, not living according to biblical requirements, we need to exercise charity. Yes, Rebuke is sometimes necessary. Confrontation, exhortation, sometimes necessary. 
Yes, sometimes we need to call one another to live according to our professed beliefs and repent of sin. Sometimes we even need to go through that process, that biblical process of church discipline. Sometimes we have to exclude people from membership in the church, but we always ought to be charitable. We always ought to recognize that our own faith is often weak and our own repentance partial. And we ought to remember that Jesus Christ came for broken sinners who need his forgiveness and redemption. And the door to the church is never any wider than Jesus Christ. He is as wide as the door to the church. So we need to be careful, but we also need to be charitable in this corporate calling. And in conclusion, that, that requires, this requires biblical understanding of conversion, recognizing conversion as faith and repentance, laying aside all the variables, there are many variables, conversion is knowing, agreeing, and trusting, conversion is remorse, renouncing, running, conversion ought to always, it leads to a changed life, it leads to a changed life in the person converted. We always ought to remember that, that faith is often weak and repentance partial. And that while true change and fruits are present in the life of the sincere believer, perf perfection won't come until glory. All who are saved put their faith in Christ and repent of sin. Let's take a moment to pray together now and then engage in sober self-examination before participating in the Lord's Supper. Father, we give you thanks for this biblical concept of conversion. We pray that if there was anything I said that was not true or accurate or helpful or edifying today, that it would be wiped from our memories. But what has been declared in accordance with your word, write it upon our hearts so that we would believe and repent and obey the truth of your word so that our lives might be changed, to bring you glory in the world much good. Father, work in us this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.